Americans turned out to vote in 2018. And so the rate in 2014 for all Americans was 37 and a half percent. And in 2018, it jumped to 50. So that's a jump of 13 percentage points. In our case, the voting rate actually went up 21 percentage points. So college students were motivated, college students were excited, and they are more and more becoming a very reliable set of voters. I'm Emily Shields. I'm Marisol Morales. And I'm Andrew Seligson. Welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Hi. How's, uh, how's everybody doing <laughs> out there in the middle part of the country? I'm great. Cold. Cold. Now it's nice still. Marisol, uh, is that experience of cold perhaps because of the difference between where you are now and where you were just recently? Yes, I was just in the Dominican Republic enjoying a nice little girl's vacation or like my sister likes to call it momcation. Uh, and it was amazing and like 85 degrees, 90 degrees and then come back to 40 degrees, which I do not like. I think I've ranted about this several times on this podcast, but I, I'm not I think there's the a theme of you weather. not enjoying cold weather no. somewhere, somewhere no. in this. So you're implying that despite its reputation, Chicago is not a tropical paradise? Um, only for like two months over the summer when it gets probably as humid as uh, the Caribbean. But less like a paradise when it's like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Emily, what's been happening out there in the great state of Iowa? Um, what has I love fall, you know? I'm eating lots of candy corn pumpkins and I'm uh, getting Wait, can ready you st- for stop for right Halloween? there for just one second. I understand what a pumpkin is and I'm familiar with candy corn. What, it's like candy understand. corn but shaped like a pumpkin. And it's, it's better than the candy corn because it's like more but it ceases to be corn when it's a pumpkin, right? Um, yeah, I think it's technically called like a mellow cream pumpkin, but nobody, it's a candy corn pumpkin. Like everybody knows what that means. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I'm looking at Marisol's no? face. Uh, yeah. Oh. I'm they sell it, they mean, sell it in the bag together. It's like some of it's candy corns and some of it's the little pumpkins. But it's all made of the same mysterious, but it's all the same, toxic exactly. substance. Yes. And so I'll talk later about the this my past weekend because it sparked a lot of joy. But I did, in anticipation of this weekend, go buy like everything fall that Trader Joe's had, including candy corn popcorn, which was actually pretty good. Hmm. So I like fall flavors um, and Halloween and my kids have their costumes, and Jack is going to be a hot dog, and it's hilarious, and I love it. And politics. Like, it's almost an election. Can so, I th- propose an alternative hypothesis to what's going on here, Emily? I what? hear you promoting politics, where Iowa, you know, you got that poll position on the caucus, and then high fructose corn syrup, mm-hmm. which is an important driver of the Iowa economy because of the corn crop. Mm. Is this just like your um, 
you're in the tank for Iowa and you're like sneaking it in in all these different ways? No way to know. I've been drinking the high fructose corn syrup my whole life, so. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> Who can even separate it out at this point? But yeah, yeah there's candidates everywhere, but. Are, you know, then there's upcoming municipal and school board elections, which I'm actually even more excited about. So I am always excited about uh, campaign politics in the way that I am about sports, although some of the content sometimes makes me nervous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But did you watch last night? I didn't actually. Ooh. I did watch the United States men's national soccer team. Lose two nothing to Canada. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I thought you were talking about about the debate. I thought you were talking. There was a Democratic debate last night. Oh yes, I know. That's what I was watching. Was like indicative. Either, either. There's a debate with too many people on stage, or there's the U.S. losing badly to Canada at soccer. That's what I watched, and it was um, it was painful. It was very painful. We looked we looked disorganized. Chaotic, was that the men's soccer? Confused. Yeah. Oh, that's you know, why. Our, our women, the, yeah, the women. That does not happen. The disorganized. Right. I just lost, call that. I just call that soccer, and then men's soccer. Yeah. Soccer. No, I did men. say the men's team. I actually okay. said that. I did. Yeah. yeah, because it's no, it's an, an important distinction. Uh, and yes, if the men could live up in any brief way to the example set by the women, we would be a glorious soccer nation or, all the way you around. know, anything in general. Uh, well, I, I'm not going to dispute that. I'm not going <laughs> to dispute it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we watched both at our house and it's just too many people for a debate. It's too many people. It doesn't work. It's not working. Yeah, That's it's not take. really a, a debate. Um in that, like it isn't a debate. It's some other thing that we don't have a name for that also isn't very productive. Yeah. But yes, I skipped last night. I, I feel like, you know, the good thing about our media environment is if you pay attention to various news sources and then you go and find the clips of the things people say were interesting, you get most of what you'd want to learn from what what did it take? It was like a nine hour affair or something. They had the campaign. I did not thing. finish it. I have to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> what the uh, soccer game? No, the debate. No, <laughs> no so- soccer has the advantage in contrast with other sports that it generally is pretty contained. You know, it's forty five minutes a break, forty five minutes, and then there's yeah, and then there's maybe five sense. minutes. Um, yeah, I do love that. My least favorite thing about football and baseball, I think, are the worst. Where it's just like. Who knows? Two hours, yeah. 10 hours. C- can't say. Yeah. Uh, and I, I will admit I have like the, the way that plays out in baseball. I like that. It's like it's not about time. It's about its own internal logic. But it's also true that if you have a life to lead, it can be challenging if games are four hours and five hours and whatever. And so I don't watch any of that stuff. Yeah. Anybody have anything uh, interesting, upcoming, compact-related they want to share? Yeah, so we are having our annual Student Leadership Conference, the Civic Action Academy, November 8th and 9th. This year, it's at the University of Northern Iowa in Eastern Iowa. Um, Any students from anywhere in the country are welcome to attend. 
Uh, we will be doing, it's a lot of focus on different ways of making social change. We have some student presentations, but also a lot of professionals working across different fields. Um, we have civic leaders, nonprofit leaders, philanthropic leaders, community leaders, a bunch of folks. And we'll be also, the Secretary of State of Iowa is coming to announce the all-in Campus Democracy Challenge winners for Iowa for 2018. So we're excited to honor campuses for their high voter turnout and improved voter turnout and all those good things. So, yeah, that is right around the corner and very excited to see some students. And we have a new thing for them this year where we have developed an individual civic action plan for them to complete. And they'll be working on that throughout their time at the conference. Awesome. And I know that in um, Ohio, Ohio Campus Compact is uh, sponsoring the Propel Ohio, which is a collegiate leadership summit, uh, November 15th at Bowling Green State University. And that will feature, um, it's uh, focused on undergraduate students and um, growing their civic engagement. And it'll feature Senator Brown. And then their keynote speaker will be Monica Ramirez, who's the founder of the Justice for Migrant Women. So. Um, they've been doing this for a few years now already and so have gotten great turnout. So awesome. Mm -hmm. Good student stuff. Yeah, that reminds me too of a college convention, which is a gathering that happens every four years with the presidential cycle. It's hosted at uh, New England College. Uh, and we, with the leadership of New Hampshire Campus Compact or Campus Compact of New Hampshire for New Hampshire, Campus Compact for New Hampshire, I have that right now, uh, are sponsoring that and I'm playing some kind of role in it, but it's a great event that brings together students from around the country to get engaged with the New Hampshire primary. Uh, this year it's January 5 to 9, mm. uh, 2020, that is to say this upcoming year. Um, and. Uh, you can Google College Convention and you'll you'll find a page about it uh, if people are interested in checking that out. Nice. It falls during my birthday. So have a cake for me. I, I assume that's why it's those dates. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, speaking of stuff that has to do with voting and students and elections, uh, our interview for this episode is focused exactly there. So our guest uh, is Nancy Thomas. She's been a guest on the podcast before. Uh, many know her as the director of the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education at Tufts University and Tisch College. And uh, in that role, Nancy leads uh, NSOV, the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement. And NSOV recently released, uh, or IDHE, the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education, recently released a report uh, on the 2018 midterms and what we saw. So I was able to have a conversation with Nancy about uh, the extraordinary uh, turnout of students during the the 2018 midterm elections, uh, what what it's all about, and uh, what we should be looking forward to uh, as we move into the next cycle. So why don't we go to that interview now? Mm -hmm. 
Nancy Thomas, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Happy to be here. Always glad to have you, uh, especially when you bring exciting and interesting news. Uh, So you recently released a report uh, about the National Study of Learning, Voting and Engagement. And let's maybe start for listeners who are not familiar with the study and what it's about and how you put it together. Can you just give the quick summary of what is NSOLVE and and how does the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education put it together? Sure. So NSOLVE is a study of college student voting. Uh, It's a a one of a kind. It's not only a one of a kind for colleges and universities, but it's a one of a kind for uh, political science or the study of voting because we marry, we actually marry enrollment and voting records. It's an interesting opportunity because we have what's called a denominator. In other words, we know how many students are eligible to vote and we can actually count from among the eligible voters how many voted. Um, We um, work with de-identified records that have been sent to us from the National Student Clearinghouse. They actually do the marriage of the two sets of records. Our records include a lot of interesting information, but no identifiable information. So we don't have names. We don't have dates of birth. We have date on the age on the date of the election. We have zip codes instead of addresses. And then uh, a lot of other really important information, such as what class level a student is, uh, whether they are from in-state and out-of-state, whether uh, they are a certain sex or racial identity group, uh, and field of study. So it's really cool. Um, study. Campuses need to opt in. And in exchange for opting in, we send to every participating campus a tailored report that includes this voting data that I just mentioned. And so how how many uh, campuses are now participating? Over a thousand participate in NSOLVE right now. Um, it, It varies. Sometimes we have uh, the authorization forms go for five years. Um, we are accepting more student, more campuses. Anybody can still join and solve. And in fact, we can still go back and recreate records from 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2018. Um, it is a free service. Campuses have to sign an authorization form saying that we are allowed to do this. So you recently released uh, data and some analysis of that data from 2018, the midterm election, and also compared that to what we know from 2014, also the midterm, so the kind of comparable election cycle. When we think at the national level, what were some of the the kind of interesting data points that that jumped out at you? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, the, the report, which is called Democracy Counts, is our second one. We compared 2012 and 2016 uh, about eight or 10 months after the election. For those of you who know our study well and were disappointed that we were so long in getting you this data, my apologies, but we were actually waiting on certain states to certify and we cannot marry the records until we have certified records from every state. And in this case, there were two states that didn't certify till the end of June. Um, At any rate, so Democracy Counts 2018 is a report that we put out at the end of September. And we we put out some pretty surprising numbers, but they were surprising to us, too. 
uh, you will all be pleased to know that college students voted at double the rate that they did in 2014. Now, that may sound awesome, but frankly, 2014 was abysmal. Um, if you if you read some of the reports that come out of our sister research center circle, that which is down the hall, you would know that 2014 was the lowest of voting rates for young people in the United States um, in in the last 50 years. And so, moving up from the lowest is it's a no-brainer all right so the college student voting rate doubled um more americans turned out to vote in 2018 and so the rate in 2014 for all americans was 37 and a half percent and in 2018 it jumped to 50. so that's a jump of 13 percentage points or so about 13 percentage points. In our case, the voting rate actually went up 21 percentage points. So college students were motivated, college students were excited, and college students performed. They came out. Um, They are more and more becoming a very reliable set of voters. Is there anything when you go deeper into the data and, and look at subpopulations, uh, beyond that, obviously, as you indicated, really uh, exciting, uh, even if from an abysmal uh, starting point increase. Are there are there particular um, elements of what, what's inside the data that you think are, are interesting to share? Sure. So for us, of course, we're interested in increasing political learning, uh, discourse, participation, but mostly equity. And so we're always trying to measure the equity gaps among college students. We would like to see those gaps closed. And we saw a couple of really exciting trends, um, hopefully trends, in 2018. Uh, One is that uh, black women continue to vote at the highest demographic group. That has been consistent over all of these elections and it continues. So we see them as the future political leaders possibly. Uh, But we also saw some real closing of gaps between Hispanic women and other voters and Hispanic women they went up 23 percentage points. So the the turnout for certain demographic groups was just terrific. Um, That does close the gaps, but they still exist. So can you say a little bit more about those gaps and kind of where where we see opportunities, especially in the context of campuses building or redesigning or improving voter engagement programs among their students? What are some opportunities for engaging with groups who have been underrepresented in participation? Well, first of all, it's really important to do that. It's also important to measure that. And our reports will allow campuses, if they provide that data, it will it will allow them to know exactly what is happening with various subgroups on their on their campuses. Um, we we look we've been following some campuses and we have seen some really exciting changes. So for example, um, De Anza Community College has a very significant program with an Asian Law Association. And they um, 
work with the students not only on how well they're doing in school, but also their efforts to become naturalized citizens. And when those students are naturalized, the school has a big celebration. And at the celebration, they register them to vote. So it's a more holistic approach to to this. Um, And there are other groups that are working with subgroups and they come to campuses. They're they're really effective. A lot of them are part of the Student Learn Student Vote Coalition. So if you were to go onto their website, you could see all of these organizations and see the subgroups that they work with. And so sort of sticking with that, the theme of kind of what colleges and universities could be doing uh, that maybe is learning from what has worked in 2018 uh, and looking looking ahead toward 2020 and beyond. What are what are some of the things that you think are helping to drive increases that you're capturing in in these reports at the campus level? Right. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot is whether 2018 is a blip. You know, is it an outlier year? And my guess is that 2018 and 2020, I think we're going to have a strong turnout in 2020 as well. Uh, But I do think there's a very good question to ask, and that is what will happen in 2022. So that is that's kind of the the big question. So what caused students to turn out so much in 2018? Well, we think it's a few things. First of all, we did see a rise of activism among young people, and that activism was clearly on college campuses. College students were on fire, not only on basic uh, registering students to vote and typical get out the vote issues, but also um, on issues. You know, they were fired up about immigration. They were fired up about gun violence. And um, they want campuses to take care of the DACA students. They also are worried about their future and the environment. So you saw a lot of issue activism and issue activism clearly is one of the predictors of voting. So that issue activism, I think, really helped. The second thing I think helped was a lot of institutional commitment. And I think some of that was driven by the NSOLV reports. I think campuses, campus leaders saw these reports. They didn't pay much attention to them, frankly, uh, or not that we know. We, we send them out and it's unless they let us know, we have very little knowledge of what what used to happen with them. But we started tracking it a little bit more. And certainly 2018, it, campuses were paying attention to their NSOLV reports. We think that was a combination of the low, low rates in 2014. I mean, we had a lot of campuses that were in the single digits. Uh, and and then this the results of the election in 2016, which took a lot of campuses, not all, a lot of campuses by surprise. So the combination of getting their voting rates in 2014, seeing how bad they were, getting the results of 2016, and then seeing the results from the 2016 reports, which were not all that. I mean, they were 48 percent. That's a little better than than uh, what we had seen in 2012, but not much to write home about. So uh, I think we're on an upward trajectory. I, I think for 2022, we're gonna have to see some real changes at the institutional level in terms of student learning. 
we're going to need to see campuses pay a lot more attention to issues. Campuses pay more attention to discourse. Um, our research has found that political discussions in every nook and cranny of an institution, you've heard me say this before, I think I even said it before in a podcast, but political discussion is important. And that is what's going to get college students to be aware of issues, to become activists, to become concerned. Um, these discussions need to happen not only outside of the classroom, in co-curricular planning, but also in the classroom. We need to do a better job teaching our professors how to lead politically charged discussions in the classroom. And uh, I think that you know, for many, many years, I focused on deliberative democracy and the efforts to get campuses to be better about all sorts of forms of dialogue and deliberation on campus. Well, now it's no longer a tough sell. Campuses are working to create hubs for dialogue, structures to support students learning as facilitators, first year experiences where the students learn the skills of framing issues, understanding the different perspectives on issues, assuming perspectives they don't hold, um, and even advocacy and making the case for things. So we're gonna need to see a lot more in the curriculum and in co-curricular programming. I think just to kind of um, amplify what you were just saying about the role that institutional engagement has played, um, I, I was thinking, so we ran a project here in the 2018 cycle called Engage the Election, led by our director for community college engagement, Virtus Robinson. Uh, we had a cohort of community colleges. They, there was issue discussion. There was kind of campus-wide celebrations related yeah. to election, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we've now compared their results to community colleges in general. And the increase on, in that cohort was significantly larger than the national increase. And I think wow. it's That's what great. you're suggesting, that like there was a, some nat national forces pushing, pushing everybody up. Right. But campuses that grabbed hold of that and brought students together, focused them on issue discussion, focused them on electoral processes and the importance of participation, were able to kind of seize that moment. Mm -hmm. And so then, yeah, I agree with you. We'll see whether that gets baked in in a way that lasts into the future, and that, that seems like a crucial question. But having the data, you know, which obviously is as a result of your work, that allowed people to say, here's our baseline, let's do better than that. Some of the campuses we worked with uh, had 50 percentage point increases in voting participation. That's stunning. 14 to 18. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really amazing. Yeah. Um, so, and, and just to put the pieces together, that was a project funded by a subgrant from the Students Learn, Students Vote Coalition. And I think you're right, there's a kind of infrastructure developing that if we keep it together and we keep supporting it with the data, with uh, some coordinated, loosely coordinated efforts, I would say nationally, where they look different in different places, but everybody's kind of talking to each other. Um, it's just a different world than it was, uh, yeah, four or five years ago uh, in this respect. Well, we really need to get the disciplinary associations to talk about this. Uh, we need to get presidents to talk about this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was working with a group of presidents and the what's on their minds, and I suspect on the minds of all presidents, is how do we maintain a robust, uh, healthy campus climate during this upcoming election season? And that is integrally related 
to voting. You know, if you can't have political discussions on your campus, whether you're too timid to have them or because they blow up or you haven't done the groundwork to ensure that they won't blow up, um, then you're, you know, you're not going to be able to do those deep embedded things that we're talking about in the curriculum or in the co-curricular programming. So there, you know, it's, it, it's not like a Nike ad, you know, you just don't, don't just do it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta plan it. And there are some underlying factors that you really need to be attentive to in order to have productive and, um, and comfortable, frankly, not too comfortable, <laughs> somewhat comfortable discussions. So we, so for example, we, uh, you know, Campus Compact has our summit of presidents and chancellors, our biennial event, March 29th, Seattle, Washington. If you are or know a president, you should let them know about it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you've done work that is focused on the question of what campuses need to be focused on mm-hmm. in order to, to keep this momentum going. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's the kind of the what are the top items on that list that you would want presidents to be thinking about mm. as they head into the 2020 cycle? Right. So we've got uh, two resources that we've put out in the is along these lines. One is our work on politics 365, the idea that uh, we don't want to focus on elections or political learning and engagement in a way that's episodic and only connected to elections. But we want to embed this across the curriculum 365 days a year. And then from that research, which was based on some qualitative case studies, we're up to 23 now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, at any rate, we put out something called election imperatives. And election imperatives are our 10 recommendations. You know, I felt a little bad calling it 10 recommendations because under each one is another 12 to 15 recommendations. It's, it's 10 or, you know, 150. Oh, that's it's, exactly. uh, it's somewhere in that range. That's right. But election imperatives was designed for those who didn't, didn't really realize they have a role. And so the first few recommendations are actually directed at senior institutional leaders like presidents or provosts or deans or vice presidents. Um, So I'll give you one example, um, and it's related pretty much to just an election, but then I'll give you another example. Um, A lot of students don't know how to vote. They've never seen a voting machine before. They've never seen a ballot before. The process is completely intimidating. Frankly, it intimidates me that stupid machines keep changing. And every time I go in there, I think, huh, I hope I can figure this one out. Well, students feel the same way. And it's, it, it is the responsibility of institutional leaders to make sure that the campus has the resources to either borrow or rent a voting machine and show the students how to use it. So that's a simple one. But um, another one that I think requires some senior attention is no student should graduate without knowing how to spot fake news. You know, misinformation was an enormous driver in 2016. And if you read the, or hear the news at all, you cannot overlook the fact that it probably is going to be a pretty big driver in 2020. So we need to teach our students how to spot falsehoods and, uh, and, 
And that's an important agenda that, frankly, is also going to require some resources. Nancy, I'm trying not to turn this interview into just a series of plugs for Campus Compact events, but (laughs) at our conference in Seattle, Mike Caulfield from Washington State University, Vancouver, who has done what I think of as the gold standard work on how to teach students to spot fake news. Uh, He'll be doing a, a large format session and a kind of a workshop and a real opportunity to dig into that. Okay, and I think glad. you're absolutely right. That ought to be a fundamental feature of, of, of being a citizen, of being a participant, and a citizen not in the narrow legal sense, but the broad human right to participate sense. And yeah, it means that it's crazy that it's not an aspect of higher education, given what we know is happening in the world, as you said. Well, and Mike is just terrific. And he's got some really accessible resources, which means it's inexcusable. Adam Gizmondi in my office also does a lot of work in that area. And uh, we we have resources that we put out, but but I think Mike, Cauf- Mike Caulfield is just terrific at it. Um, Adam can give a talk that terrifies you. I've seen that happen. Yeah. Where some of the technology that I did not know about till I saw it in Adam's talk uh, yeah. that allows people to create false video that makes it appear that a person is saying something on a video. So you really think you've seen it and it's not real. And again, that was a thing where I'm a very attentive news reader, et cetera, et cetera. And I was stunned and I thought, I wonder if I've been fooled by that. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. That's uh, yeah, that, that whole, it's hard to keep up with because the technology makes it increasingly difficult, but developing a set of skills in that area, it's probably useful for all of us to brush up given the technological changes, but certainly we need yeah. to be bringing that to our students. Oh, well, one of my favorite videos was some little toddler who probably had learned to walk the day before doing the Rocky, you know, workout in one of the Rocky videos where he's jumping up and down and doing the jump rope and all this kind of stuff. And I thought it was the cutest thing I ever saw. And I showed it to Adam. He goes, that's fake. I've <laughs> seen that video and I did not know it was Adam, fake. Adam, please, you're first in my bubble. <laughs> yeah, that was very cute. It don't don't very tell cute. me that was fake. That's actually quite horrifying because that is an example where I know I was totally tricked. I know. I know. Well, let me, let's get serious again, because I think there is one other issue that really worries me, and that is voter suppression. Voter suppression is more and more uh, targeted at college students. And some of the suppression is not even, uh, it's, there's no pretending. I mean, New Hampshire, what they're trying to do, you have to become a New Hampshire resident and get a driver's license and so forth. So much for the Supreme Court and the ruling that if you've got residents, even this idea that you're in college and dorms, it's still a form of residence and you can vote locally. Uh, I think that it is a wonderful learning opportunity for students to figure out how to tackle those laws, whether it's by ballot or by legislative change. But wow, let's let's get our college students to learn how, learn how a bill becomes a law and get them to work on these things. But at the same time, they are going to need support from senior leadership. And it is you know, probably going to be a difficult sell, but I would really like to see college presidents use their position to ensure that their students are not deprived of their right to vote. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's an important issue. And and you're right that 
for many college presidents, especially at public institutions, that means wading into things that are potentially uncomfortable. But that also is an example to students that people are willing to actually take some risks for things that matter. Uh, and the rights of students to vote ought to matter to senior leaders. So I think that's an excellent point. Well, and it goes back to the historic mission of higher education. What are we here for? We're here to make sure that we have a healthy and uh, solid democracy. And that's a piece of it is, is voting rights. And I think it's an important role for institutional leaders to play. So uh, we've talked some about what institutions should be thinking about and and the folks who are building programs and curricula uh, for them and leading them. What are things that you are thinking about for NSOLV or for uh, the Institute for Democracy in Higher Education at Tisch College uh, moving forward? Yeah. So we've got a long research agenda, as you can imagine. Um, One of the things that we're going to be doing is back out on the road to do some more case studies. But this time we're going to look at campuses that have closed equity gaps. And we're excited to see what's in the water. That's our very scientific research question. (laughs) What's in the water on the campuses where um, different demographic groups of students or even fields of study vote at at the same rates or higher than say the average or um, students of color versus white students, something like that. So we'll be looking at closing equity gaps. We're also going to be doing a deeper dive and looking at our data longitudinally. So we're gonna look at 2012, 14, 16, and 18. Um, We haven't had a chance yet to do a, a strong comparison between what happened in 2016 and 2018. So we're gonna be looking at that to see if it uh, can tell us anything about the upcoming presidential election. Uh, We're gonna do a a quantitative analysis of first-time voters and looking at some of the conditions for first-time voters. Are there, does does that, do first-time voters vote at higher rates in certain states or certain districts or under certain conditions? We often look at what we call the predictors of voting. We have an ability to do that with this database. And so we'll be looking at the predictors of voting for first-time voters. Um, Gender, you know, it's the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage and we are going to do a pretty deep dive into all things about sex on campus, um, about women, what women's colleges continue to vote at the highest rates among institutional types. You know, what what's that all about? Even if we control for the fact that they're all women and women vote at higher rates, um, even if we control for that, those schools are um, thriving. And there's a reason for that. Um, we're also going to be doing a boundaries initiative where we're going to look at campuses like Tufts that are split in half or are right on a ba- boundary where it doesn't quite look right. But in, meaning in legislative districts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And see see if we see anything. So we've got a long um, research agenda. We also... We, uh, as you know, we do a lot of work on the First Amendment, free speech, um, inclusive campus climates, and uh, particularly working with institutional leaders to help them create the kind of climate. Uh, I went, I, you know, I called it sort of explosive or blowing up. Uh, the presidents don't want that. 
<laughs> right? Yes, as a general you really rule. don't want that. <laughs> and the problem is that I don't want them to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If they, if they're so averse to conflict, then they aren't going to have the political discussions that we we want them to have. So there are tricks of the trade, and and I would we would really like to work with campuses on those things. Well, we will look forward to uh, all of the products of, of that agenda. Uh, I know that we at Campus Compact have learned an enormous amount from the work that you've led at IDHE up to now, and we're always happy to share that out with the world and encourage them to participate. Uh, so thank you for all that work, and thank you for being a guest on the Compact Nation podcast. Oh, Andrew, I really appreciate you giving us this platform, so thanks so much. Keep up the good work. We are back, and as is our practice in season four, we are going to share a few things that are sparking joy for us right now. Marisol, are you sparked? I am sparked. Uh, I just got back, as you heard earlier, from a trip to the Dominican Republic, and it was an awesome trip because it was a trip with 21 women. Uh, It was organized, uh, all-inclusive trip for the long weekend, and it was amazing to be with uh, a group of professional women from across the country who were just there to kind of have fun, relax, and um, support each other. So even though we didn't really know each other, it was really uh, powerful. space and and Dominican Republic is a beautiful country so just thinking about um, the idea of like uh, self-care and it always reminds me of the Audre Lorde um, quote that caring for myself is not self-indulgence it's self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare and so really just the importance of being in this work and being able to take the time to uh, engage in, in self-care to, to keep on going. And so that sparks joy for me. Yeah. Well, mine is super similar, which is really interesting. Right. Um, yeah, that we're on the same journey. I also spent a weekend with other women, most of whom I didn't know, about 100 of them in the woods in Iowa at the YMCA camp. Um it was called Pollinate Women's Weekend. It's the brainchild of a good friend of mine. And I've been on the planning committee for it for about the last six months. And it was incredible. I don't even know. It, my friends and I have decided this is just like when you go to camp as a kid, you're always like people who go to camp. I actually really didn't. People who go to camp are always like, oh, I can't really explain it. It's like it's camp. And I don't know, which is super annoying. But kind of how I feel about it. Um, we did a lot of fun outdoors things and, um, but there were also a lot of rituals and a lot of women were willing to share their cultural rituals and healing practices and things along those lines. And it was just very supportive and the opportunity for real reflection. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I feel really good. It was awesome. Yeah. And there was a full moon. Yes. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we did this whole trail of five fires thing where we walked to five different fires like out on the prairie and at each one we we the theme was the Native American medicine wheel and a woman told a story for each of the directions, north, south, east and west. 
And they were extremely powerful stories. And we were like out on the prairie at these fires under the full moon. It was insane. It was so cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So I just I'm going to give a little behind the curtain for our listening audience that um, we record these uh, speaking to each other on Zoom, the video conferencing platform. And people in this call have been experimenting with the virtual backgrounds. And so as Emily described that whole thing, she has the Eiffel Tower behind her and a kind of fake France situation. And for some reason that made it more entertaining for me. I'm literally in France. I don't don't know what you're talking about. I misunderstood. With with a bookshelf and an empty frame behind you. Yeah. It's a little confusing (laughs) what sort of France it is, but it's some form of Paris that you're in. Uh, well, my sparks joy also has to do with people in the woods, but it wasn't me. Um, so what sparked joy for me is that I got to see my nephew, Josh Seligson, last night. This is my brother's son. And Josh is, uh, how old is Josh? I should maybe know my nephew's age. He's 24-ish. He'll, he'll be fine <laughs> with that. He graduated the University of Oregon a couple years ago and, um, He decided uh, this last year that he was going to take some time and hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And for those not familiar, this is a trail that starts on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border near San Diego and goes north to the U.S.-Canada border in the state of Washington and covers 2,650 miles. And so you start in March and you start going north and you hope that there's not too much snow in the mountains still there when you get there and you keep walking for depends how long depending on how much snow he was hoping that it would take I think uh, more like three months but there was an enormous snowfall this past winter and it was extremely complicated to get through um, the mountains And so his normal pace of more than 20 miles a day, uh, he wasn't able to keep up. It was. And so they would shoot for about 15 miles a day in this deep snow in the mountains. And so he did this essentially on his own, except that, you know, it's kind of a feature of the trail that you hook up with people and walk with them for a few days and maybe longer. And he had a group of three other people that he that he hiked with for like quite a while. And then uh, they split apart because they kind of felt like keeping different paces at a certain point. But so I saw him last night. It was the first time I'd seen him since he finished this about a month ago. And it was just so interesting to talk to him about this journey and the incredible preparation and discipline that it took to do this um, the the nature of the relationships that you develop with the random people you encounter and the things that he observed. And um, it was just like, uh, for me, another, like, I, I love reminders of the way people at different stages in life have the capacity for insight and undertakings that I feel like are different at different times for different people. But um, Josh has always been a really thoughtful person. He's great to talk about a million things, but he just had so like thrown himself into this unbelievably challenging undertaking and is um, very, yeah, he just has all these insights that came out of it. So it was, it was great to have the opportunity to 
to hear this from him and know that like this is a hundred percent not a thing I could or would want to do, but also have just tremendous respect for him for taking this on and and just kind of working through it. Uh, really interesting. Oh, that's Spark awesome. Joy for me. All right. Well, we hope. Uh, there are things out there for all of you sparking joy in your world. Uh, that is it for us today at the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to us at podcast at compact.org or join us on social media at the hashtag Compact Nation pod. And uh, thank you both for chatting with me today. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs> Au revoir. To the reseeing, as we say. I couldn't come up with a second. <laughs> Nobody could tell, Emily. <laughs> Are we ready for that? Wet. <laughs> no, I said, no, I said, we. Quack? No, nice for speaking French. <laughs> that's how, I heard, like, I heard, what? That's how Parisian French people say we. They say, they actually say wet. <laughs> Sounded like quack. <laughs> No, if I were going to do a New Year's episode with like all the outtake stuff, I would have been like, <laughs> quack, quack. if I were quacking, you would know I was quacking. There would be no uncertainty about maybe he's just speaking French in the Parisian mode. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me. Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.